0: Uh, Just rebels pushes back against the idea of God. Christianity is becoming less and less uh, accepted or popular. And so how do we as followers of Jesus live in this culture but not be consumed by the culture and at the same time not build up walls that completely isolate us from this culture. Now if you are a If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, uh, this message will probably resonate with you to some level, I hope. I hope that uh, you are challenged by it and encouraged by it. If you're in the room this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you haven't put your faith in Him yet, some of the ideas that I'm going to talk about probably won't exactly resonate. You might not, might not make sense, and, and that's okay. I, I just want to, to give you that heads up that, that that's a possibility, and it'll give you a clue into why we live the way we do as Christians, hopefully. Um, and hopefully challenge your heart as well. Now, as we get into this series, one of the things that happens with this is we talk about, well, how do we engage the culture? One of the questions that will come to uh, me as a pastor or Pastor Adam is this idea of, well, maybe we're going to talk about what, what are the things we should do? What are the things that we shouldn't do? What is off limits and what, what can we get away with, in essence? Uh, what kind of music can I listen to? So can I listen to secular music in my car? Can I watch that TV show? Can I go see that movie? I'm just going to tell you right up front, one of the things that I'm not going to do is I'm not going to dive into the do's and don'ts for a couple reasons. The first reason is that nobody likes a list of do's and don'ts anyway. Right? None of us like that. The second reason is I believe that as you seek the Lord, as you study his word, as you seek him in your own personal life, God's going to begin to, to lay some convictions on your heart about those things about your, the entertainment that you take in, uh, specifically like the music, the, the, the movies, the TV shows. And I'm reminded as we talk about that, there's a passage in Romans chapter 14. You can look at it uh, later if you want. I didn't want to turn there this morning. But a passage at the end of Romans where Paul tells us that the things that we do that are outside of faith are sin. And there, he was talking to a culture where some people were struggling with the type of foods that they could eat. And there were certain foods that they felt were off limits. And what Paul was getting at was, well, if you feel like for you, that's off limits and you eat that, then you're going against your conscience. You're sinning. But for others, they might eat that and it might not go against their conscience. So when we get into this area of entertainment in our in our world, we tend to have these battles. And it, sometimes it's an issue of conscience. What has God laid on your heart in that area of your life? And what has God convicted you about? So. I believe that God will begin to form those boundaries for you and you don't need someone to give them to you. Of course, there are some things that are uh, absolutely sinful and out of bounds, but we're not going to get into that this morning. The reason what I want to do with this series is I want to get into why is it important for us to engage the world around us? So we want to we kick that question around this morning or entertain that question. Why is it important for us as believers to engage the world around us? Why can't we just isolate ourselves from the culture? Why can't we just push ourselves away? And the reason is because we need to live in this world and make a difference. So that's what we're going to get at is, is how do we do that? Now, as we go into this series, what I want to do for you is to paint uh, two pictures for you, two mental pictures that I think will really help you with uh, the rest of the series as we go through it. The first one is this, and, and I think that probably every person in this room can relate to this on some level. If you've ever been in a large group of people, all right, I think of the first thing that comes to my mind is when I have been, the times that I've been in New York City. I've been walking through Manhattan on, in Times Square. There's just a tremendous amount of people and traffic. Uh, perhaps another one would be if you've been to a sporting event, all right? At the time of the end of the sporting event or maybe the beginning and you're trying to leave and there's just this massive group of people. Or if you've ever been in the mall like Park City or King of Prussia during the holiday season and there's a lot of people there, have you ever gotten caught on the wrong side of traffic? Like, you know, there's like this kind of unwritten rule that the left side goes one way, the right side goes another. And for some reason, you get stuck on the wrong side. And you can feel that pressure. I mean, every step, you're trying not to run into people. You're trying to avoid them. You're trying to to stay out of the way and just keep from running into people and other, other things. And so that picture comes to mind vividly. Another one that I would share with you that's more personal for me is about 15 years ago I went to the Outer Banks and at that point in my life um, uh, I was with some friends of mine and I had zero fear, I mean zero fear at that point in my life. I was 20 years old of going into the water, none. And I was in much better shape then and I felt, uh, you know how it is when you're 20 years old, you're a guy, you feel indestructible. And just went out in the water, my friends and I had no thought of anything happening And we're out swimming for a while and all of a sudden we decide, well, you know, we want to go in and and we start to try to swim in. And very quickly I realized that this is not going to be an easy task. I mean, we're really not able to move. I've been swimming as hard as I can for the last couple minutes and I haven't moved. The beach is no closer to me than it was when I started. So after about another five, five, six minutes of just fighting this and we're swimming and I'm looking at the lifeguard and I'm thinking... Why isn't she getting off her chair to come out here and rescue me? And she is pointing, like just pointing and whistling and yelling. And I can't hear a word she says. You know how it is when you're out in the water like that? You can't. I don't understand. And I'm looking at my friend and we're both just kind of struggling there. And finally, finally, after, I don't know, it seemed like a half hour. I'm sure that's an exaggeration. But it sounds good for the story. Uh, But... After a certain amount of time goes by, I realize she's telling us to swim up the beach. And so finally we start swimming up the beach and it becomes easy and the waves take us in. And I lay down on that beach. I was never so happy to just get to the sand. And I laid down on the beach just exhausted. I was beat. I am not a good swimmer. I can swim, but I'm not a great swimmer. I don't know how people do it. They swim long distances uh, because it always has just wiped me out. And I laid on that beach just exhausted and so glad to be on that dry ground again. Well, as you think about that, I want you to think of that in the context of your Christian life as a follower of Jesus. If you ever feel like you walk through this world and in this culture and you feel like that, like every step is against the grain, like you're swimming in, a, in, in that water and it continually is pushing back against you and you're wondering why. Well, let me encourage you this morning that it should feel that way. As a follower of Jesus, as you live in this world, it should feel like that. That might surprise you, but it should. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to... Uh, to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, a passage in John. And before we do that, I'll give you um, kind of where we're headed today. The overarching statement of this morning is that if you are a follower of Jesus, this world is not your home. This world is just not home to you because you've been called out and you've been made new. So here's where we're going to be. John Chapter 14, there's a a layout of the Old Testament on the left, the New Testament on the right. If you're new to, to God's word, there it is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 14. And we're going to jump through uh, a couple passages here, a couple chapters actually. John chapter fourteen through seventeen. And don't worry, before you get worried, we're not going to read through John fourteen through seventeen. That would take uh, most of the morning. The sun, the snow would gather, and we'd have a hard time getting home. I just want to get through a couple of uh, a couple passages and highlight a few things for you here. So let me set the stage before I jump into uh, John chapter 14 of what's happening here. And Jesus is speaking in this, in this whole uh, passage here. It's, it's mostly him talking. And just before this, just before he speaks in John chapter 14, he's talking to his disciples. And he realizes that his time is short, that God the Father is calling him back home. And then his time here on earth is done. And so he's letting his disciples know that my time is short and I need to leave. I'm leaving. I'm going away. And where I'm going, you cannot come right now. Not that you can't be there ever, but you can't come there now. And his disciples are confused. I mean, his disciples, just put yourself in this place. And I encourage you to do this whenever you read the word of God is try to put yourself into the place of those that would be receiving these words. All right? And the disciples have poured three years of their life into this man named Jesus. They've given everything to him, everything. And now he comes to them and says, hey, I'm about to leave, but you guys will be all right, but I'm about to leave. And so, of course, there's some anxiety in them. And Peter boldly stands up and says, well, Jesus, I would die for you. And, of course, Jesus calls him out on that and says, just wait a couple weeks and we'll see what happens, or a couple days and we'll see what happens. But that's where we pick this up in John chapter 14. And here's what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. I just want to stop there with you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Again, plug yourself in to be one of those disciples. And if I was one of those disciples, I would be looking at Jesus and say, why not? Why should my heart not be troubled? Help me understand that. And here's why I would be asking that question. Because just a few paragraphs later... If you want, go with me to verse 30 of chapter 14. He says this. I don't have much more time to talk to you. That's Jesus speaking. Because the ruler of this world approaches, but he has no power over me. Well, who's the ruler of this world? In this context, what what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil. And for whatever reason, God in his sovereignty has given Satan some time to to rule and to reign, to have some type of dominion. His dominion is not over God's. Don't hear that. He's still submissive to God, but he has some type of authority here. And Jesus lays it out and says to the disciples, listen, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no power over me. Notice he doesn't say he doesn't have any power over you, though. He just says he doesn't have any power over me. Now, keep going just ahead a little bit. Chapter 15, verse 18. Because it's going to get better for the disciples. Chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. So here that idea is again, this world is not your home. I feel like there's some of us that need to just hear that and let it resonate in our hearts. This world is not home. All right. He goes on. Do you remember that I told you a slave is not greater than the master? Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. So let's recap for a second. Jesus is leaving. Satan is coming. And the world is going to hate you. All right. I'm not too excited at this point if I'm one of the disciples listening to this. You go on to chapter 16, verse 33. Chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you all this so that you may have peace. Now, I realize we skipped a lot here, but does peace the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Jesus is leaving, Satan is coming, and the world's going to hate him, hate me, hate us? All right? And then he goes on. And he says... He says, I've told you all this, that you may have peace in me here on earth. You will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So now just to recap it all, Satan is coming. And Peter, Peter actually lays this out later in one of his letters. He says that Satan comes and he is a roaring lion looking to devour his prey. His prey, that's us. Satan is coming to try to destroy us, to hinder us, to rip us away from God, right? He tells his disciples, you're going to be hated. You're going to have sorrows in this world. There's going to be trials. And again, I would look back at Jesus when Jesus tells me, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I would say, why? Because the minute Jesus comes out with this, his PR rep, his public relation guy has a heart attack. He's like, Jesus, you can't lead with this stuff, man. Nobody's going to follow you. Who in the world is going to sign up for this? The minute you're gone, this whole thing's going to fall apart. And in addition to this, just go back to what Jesus has already told them in the way that He's told them to live countercultural. Listen to this. See if any of these ring a bell. He says to them, "Love your enemies. And those that persecute you pray for them. So in other words, they mock you, ridicule you, pray for them. Those that would strike you, that would hit you in the face, turn the other side of your face and give that to them as well. And if someone comes and steals your shirt, give them your jacket. And if they come and ask you to walk a mile with you or with them, go with them too. And it's a complete contradiction to this world system. It's an absolute contradiction to the world system and myself included. I mean, I think about this. And if someone comes into my house and starts stealing my stuff, my first thought is not to pick up my TV and carry it out to the car for them. That's not my first thought. My first thought is going to be to call the cops. Now, I've never been punched in the face, and I don't really want to be punched in the face. But if that were to happen, I'm assuming that my first thought isn't going to be like, here, have the other side. Okay? Okay. So how does this make sense? Why is it that Jesus would tell them, do not let your hearts be troubled? And it is true, absolutely true, that God's grace and his mercy is free to us. And my salvation is free because of what Jesus has done for me. It's not by my works, but it's by his grace, his mercy, and what he did for me on the cross. But you have to hear me this morning. There is a cost to following Jesus. Don't miss this. There is a cost to following Jesus. It will require you to to deny yourself, to look in on yourself and see your own wickedness, your own unrighteousness and say, God, it's about you and you are righteous. I see your righteousness and I see my wickedness. I see your holiness and I see my unholiness and I see your beauty and your perfection and I see the ugliness of my own heart and I turn away from it. There's a cost. You have to be able to acknowledge that and here's why you have to acknowledge that. Because when you start to tell people, when you start to walk around and tell people about this Jesus that you love and you serve, and you start to tell them things like, hey, there's one Lord over all of us and his name is Jesus. There's one creator over all things and his name is Jesus. There's one judge of all of us and he will judge us for our actions and every word of our mouth and his name is Jesus. There's only one savior that you can have and his name is Is Jesus, when you start to tell people that, people will hate you. They will hate you, just as they hated Jesus. You're not going to make a lot of friends that way. And you have to be completely convinced, completely convinced that this world is not your home. That your father is in heaven and he has sent you here for a reason. And though they may hate you, you your heart should break for them. Because they just haven't seen it yet. And so when I am fully convinced that Jesus is my Savior, that God is my Father, and that this world is not my home, when I am fully convinced that this world is not my home, then I live differently. I live differently. I want to give you another illustration of this. And, And before we do that, you're there. Go back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. So when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. We'll go further now. We'll go into verses 2 and 3. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I was going or I am going to prepare a place for you? So in other words, listen to me. This world is not your home. I'm going home to prepare a place for you, and when everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be met with me where I am. And Jesus is going to emphasize this even more. Jump forward with me to John chapter seventeen. That's the last. That's the last movement we'll do. We're going to stop here in John chapter seventeen, and the reason is because. Um, Jesus gets it so much here. I love this passage. And the reason I love this passage so much is because John, the writer here, was the closest, one of the closest that we know of with Jesus. He had intimate details that, that I don't think others had because he was such a close friend of Jesus. And so he brings us into this this window this prayer that Jesus has during the time when he's getting ready to go to the cross and there's some anxiety in his heart about that and he's crying out to God the Father and that's what this chapter is about. And what I love the most about it is that Jesus prays for me in this chapter. Now, he doesn't say, hey, I pray for that guy, Chris Smeltz, in 2015 that's going to live in East Earl. He doesn't say that. But he says, I pray for everyone that will believe in the message, believe in the message of the disciples. That's you and I. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's us. So jump back with me. John chapter 17. And we're going to look at verse 14 to start. There's a lot more we could get into here, but I want to start in verse 14. I have given them your word. He's speaking about the disciples. I have given them your word. I've done what you've asked me to do. I've challenged them. I've I've told them of your goodness. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. There's that idea again. The world hates them because they don't belong to it. Because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to grasp this, that this world is not home to you. You've been called out. You've been set apart. God's given you a new heart. He's made you a new creation. All right? And as you look at Jesus and you look at his death on the cross, his death on the cross is not an offense to you as it is to the world. The world looks at the cross and says that that Jesus would come and die for my sins. Well, I don't need a savior. Why would he come and do that? I don't need one. The world rejects Jesus, but to us as Christians, it's a glorious substitution that made it possible that we could go home to be with him, that we could call him our heavenly father. It's the only way possible is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it makes a difference. Now, a side note to that, a side note to that is when you begin to embrace that and you understand, all right, Jesus is my savior. God is my father. And this world is not my home. Things start to change for you. Your money, your stuff, Even your physical body, you can recognize it as temporary. It's just temporary. I want you to think about this for a second because I think that this can can give us a window into our own hearts. Because think about the last time that something broke that was important to you, that had some value. Maybe you were in a car accident. I, I haven't been, praise Jesus and knock on wood, I haven't been in a car accident with another car but I have witnessed some and I've seen some, and I've seen some people fly off the handle when they are hit by somebody else, right? They get out of the car. They're, what were you thinking? You're such an idiot. Why would you do that? Why were you on your, they're just exploding. Why are they exploding? The last time your children broke something that belonged to you, that you were, you had some value to you. How did you respond? Think about it for a second. And I want to ask you, how much value does that car have in the kingdom of God? That car that somebody ran into, praise Jesus, you're all right. Hopefully you get out of the car. All right, it messed it up. It's kind of a downer on your day. That car has zero value in the kingdom of God. That item that your children broke, maybe your iPad, your iPhone, they were being careless, they dropped it, cracked the screen, you get all mad and angry, that thing has zero value in the kingdom of God. But that child, or that person that ran into you, has an immense value in the kingdom of God. I remember many years ago, my my wife... um, she wasn't my wife then, we, we were just engaged and, and her parents were gracious enough to take a bunch of us down to this place called Charter Hall. Uh, it's, it's down off the Chesapeake Bay and uh, my father-in-law had just bought this brand new boat, brand new. This was the first time that we got it out and if you know anything about going boating on the Chesapeake Bay, you have to be smart. All right, the Chesapeake Bay, you can't just it's not just like a big playground where you can just drive the boat out wherever you want to because there's certain spots there that are really shallow and if you take a boat into a shallow body of water, you're going to cause a lot of damage to it, especially one that has a prop. And so, he was brave enough, maybe not wise enough to let us take it out by by ourselves and my wife was driving it and she thought she knew where the channel was and she missed the channel we got into a spot that was was shallow and murky and it just messed the prop up i mean it bent it all up and we limped this thing back to the dock and i noticed on her face like she was she was somewhat worried but she wasn't like she didn't have the anxiety that i had and i was thinking my goodness and we got back, and, and she told her dad, and her dad was like, all right, we'll get it fixed. And that always stood out to me. And I asked her about it last night as I was getting ready for this, and she said, I was never afraid to tell him about anything like that because he never put a high value on that stuff. Because his value was in her, it wasn't in, in the boat. So just a challenge for us. And, and Peter, I think, picks this up. Peter uh, talks about this. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he says this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a ro- royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. And see, this is this idea of God calling us to himself. He's wooing us. He's drawing us to himself. If you're in the room and you're a believer, you know what that is, that moment where you realize, wow, I have a creator God that loves me, that made me, that sent Jesus to die for me. And I've been called out of the darkness of this world and into his marvelous light. And I recognize that that this world is temporary. As I was thinking about this passage, it brought to mind uh, a time in my life when I was, I was very young. I was about 9, 10, 11 years old, uh, even up till about 12. Uh, I used to play, I lived down in New Holland on West Main Street. 266 West Main Street. There's a big uh, church right there uh, beside our house or was close to our house. And we used to go down behind the the parking lot and down into the cemetery. And, And then beyond the cemetery, there was this open field. And just a side note, I used to hate cemeteries for this reason. I still think that I want to be cremated someday, and this is all extra. Uh, but I still think I want to be cremated someday because as more people would die, the dead bodies would eat up our football field, and it was getting really irritating to me. I'm thinking, why do you need that stone? You're not here anymore. I know that's, that's, that's a bit insensitive, but... Um, But anyway, so we would play. All the neighborhood kids would come out and play. And this was a whole block. I mean, this was down on Locust Street, which is a block behind where my house was. And as it would get dark, and I remember the sun going down. It's dark. You can't see the football anymore, but you're trying to still see that dark object. And I can remember my mom's voice. Christopher! She would yell out. The whole neighborhood would hear her. Now, my mom, if you know my mom, she's a small lady, but she has a loud voice. I didn't say she has a big mouth. That's my mama. (laughs) Wouldn't talk about her that way. But she has a very loud voice, and she's the only one who's allowed to call me Christopher. And so I would run home, and I remember I would be so muddy, dirty, sometimes cut up and bloody, and I would come into the house, and there was always a place at my father's table for me. They were always excited to see me when I came home. And I thought about this and I thought about God and I thought about our lives as we go through life and we get bloody, we get dirty, we blow it, we make mistakes and God still has a place for us. As Jesus says in John chapter 14, I've gone there to prepare a place for who? For you. I've gone to prepare a place for you that you might be where I am. And I was just encouraged by that. And we see it all throughout Scripture. God's calling us out. He's drawing us to himself. You see it all through the Scriptures. You see it with Abraham and David and Jonah and the prophets and the disciples. And you go on to Saul, who then became Paul. And it says, as a result of this, you can show others the goodness of God. For he's called you out of the darkness and into the light. And if we're not careful... We're not careful, and this is what I want to emphasize for the rest of the morning. If we're not careful, we'll take that and we'll say, well, all right, God's called me to himself. He's drawn me out. He's picked me, and we'll walk on over to Team Jesus with this type of arrogance and disdain for the others as if you're a kid that got picked first in the pickup basketball game. And you look back at the others and think, well, I'm better than them. That's why they picked me. Jesus did not call you because you were good or better than anybody else, but he had a purpose for you. And he called you out of the darkness and into his light that you could be on the same mission that Jesus was on. I want to show you this in the scripture. I don't want you to just take my word for it. John chapter 17 and verse 15. We'll move on. Here's what Jesus says about his disciples. And I believe ultimately us. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Hear that? Jesus praying to God, the father, he says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world. Don't take them out yet. But what does he pray for? But keep them safe from the evil one. We need to hear that this morning. In our prayer life, when Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray, two of the things he mentioned, keep keep me far from temptation and deliver me from the evil one. Satan is a roaring lion looking to destroy and devour whoever he can to rip us out of the kingdom of God. It's real. It's real. And Jesus prays, don't take them out of the world, but just protect them from Satan. That's what he's saying here. And here comes the scariest part. You move on to 16. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Hear that? Follower of Jesus, you do not belong to this world any more than Jesus did. And make them holy by your truth, the truth of God's word. Teach them your word, which is truth, which we have this morning, which we're studying. And then we get into 18, and this is where it gets scary for us. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Just sit with that for a second. Just as you have sent them into the world, or just as you have sent me into the world, I am sending them. And what I noticed as I was getting ready for this, as I was studying this, and this is one of those things that pastors do. We look at, look at words, and words interest us probably more than the, the average or normal person, I would say. But these words stood out to me. He says, just as I have sent them into the world, I am sending them, or just as you have sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And what stood out to me is, what do you think about when you think of the word world? What comes to your mind? The globe, right? I mean, that's what I think about. I think about the earth that we live on. I think about this piece of land that we're occupying or we're taking up residence in, right? And what stood out to me was I remembered this passage in John chapter 3, verse 16. Same writer. And he said, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, right? Well, that's the world the people, the inhabitants of. The Greek word there means the inhabitants of. So the people, not the world, the globe, but the inhabitants of the world. And sure enough, as I studied this and I looked into it, the same Greek word is what is used here. Jesus is sending us, as he was sent, into the world, the people, right, to be a light, to show them that God exists. So we've been sent into the world. So we are not here just to take up a place of earth. We're not here to just suck oxygen in. We're not here just to wait until God comes back and takes us out. That's not what we're here for. And so while the world hates God, the world shakes its fist at God, the world says, you didn't create us, we evolved. You don't exist. We're not accountable to you. We don't have to listen to you. You're not there. He first sends Jesus into the world. And then he sends us, and the mission is the same go tell him I exist, go tell him that I love him. That's the mission. That's the mission. And so, this is why, as Christians, it feels like you are swimming upstream because you should be. You have a completely different worldview then the world, when I say the world around you, the people around you, if they're not followers of Christ, they're here for one purpose, right? They're here to build their own kingdom, most of them, most of the time. But you have a completely different pur- purpose that only those that are followers of Jesus have. See, the world has this idea that I want to build my own kingdom. I want to do whatever do- is right for me, whatever is good for me, whatever benefits me, mine, and they're doing it because they don't have a higher purpose. Their purpose is simply to benefit themselves. And so they want things like, you know, they want a happy life. They, don't, they, they want a career. They want a retirement. They want comfort and peace. And it, it's not that much different. Listen to me. We're not that much different than the world. The only thing that separates us is Jesus. And Jesus has come into our lives and he's just said to us, hey, you have a different mission here. Different purpose. Yeah, you're gonna, you can get married. You can have a family. You can grow that family. You can have a career. You can have a, a, a job, a, a retirement, a nice house. I didn't, didn't say you can't have any of that. But whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so that's going to play out differently in each one of our lives. Some of us will have a lot of money. Some of us won't have hardly any money. Some of us will have great health. Others of us will not have nearly as great a health. Right? Some of us will be blue-collar workers. Some of us will be white-collar workers. Some of us will be great evangelists and have this gift. And some of us might be servants, and we just have a servant's heart, and we want to love others. And however this plays out, whatever God has gifted you with, right? whatever God has gifted you with, and whatever he's placed you, the, the goal here is to do whatever brings glory to the name of God. So if I'm a stay-at-home mom, I want to raise my kids to the glory of God. If I'm working at Turkey Hill, I want to do that to the glory of God. If I'm running a company, I want to do that to the glory of God. Whatever it is, I want to realize that I'm on this mission, that God's put me here for a purpose, and that purpose is to serve him and bring him glory. So Peter picks up on this. Back to that passage in Peter, and we want to go a little deeper here into that. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Listen to what he says. Dear friends. I warn you, he's talking to fellow Christians, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. Peter gets the idea here. This world is not your home. It's temporary. To keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give, you, give honor to God when he judges the world. And what's really tempting here is you see this idea of, he says, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your souls. I want to take a minute to highlight some things in that particular passage, because what happens for so many of us is we see the culture around us. We see the ugliness of the culture around us. We see the, the, the propensity to sin, the wickedness that is in our culture. And and we want to erect walls. We want to build walls up. We want to protect ourselves from the culture. And we live in a community of people within the Amish and the conservative Mennonite. And please hear me. I'm not beating up on them. I have friends in those communities. But they live in this community where they've done that. They've said the world is bad and we want it to stay out. So we've built as many walls around ourselves as we can to protect us. And Jesus points out to us in Mark chapter 7, something that I think is so profound that we need to grab this morning. He says, you think that the things that from outside of you is what makes you corrupts the heart. But he said it's from what comes inside the heart that the evil is found. All right, The, the sexual immorality, the hatred, the murder, that doesn't come from outside of you. That comes from inside your own heart. Your own wickedness. So it's not what comes from the outside of world that it corrupts us, but rather that what comes from inside of us. Paul Tripp, uh, a guy that I really look to, says it this way. He says, I want to think that my biggest problem in life is the evil world that surrounds me, when in, ra- in reality, my biggest problem in life is the evil heart that exists inside of me. I'll give you an example of this a story uh, from this past week, actually, with my children that I feel like highlights this so well. And I ask for his permission to share this, but... It was uh, we were getting ready as a family when you 're getting six kids ready uh, it 's never easy uh, to get out the door. It always takes us some time and we 're always hopeful that there's no hiccups there's no uh, parenting moments that happen during that, but inevitably it happens and we were getting ready. Uh, most of the kids had gone outside. I was getting uh, our, our second oldest ready and getting his shoes on and stuff and all of a sudden, this like just storm comes into our house, uh, and it 's two of our boys and they're arguing and fighting and going back and forth and had try to finally separate them and find out what the problem is, what this huge ordeal is about. And so I'm talking to our oldest one and he's telling me about what happened. He's he's saying, you know, I was out in the car, I'm sitting out in the car, I'm ready to go, which he's always the first one ready. He's always uh, pushing the rest of us along. (laughs) <laughs> and he's out in the car sitting there minding his own business and his young, one of his younger brothers is coming up our walk. Now our walk goes up a hill and there's been snow on this hill all winter long, like since December we've had snow on this hill. And so what happens is the sun comes out, it melts the snow, the water runs down our walkway and then it freezes. So we've had to just keep using salt, and, you know, a lot of salt, keep putting it out on our walk. So constantly, since December, we've had salt out on our walk. And one of my sons is taking a shovel, the, the snow shovel, and he's walking up the walk, and he's scraping all the snow or the salt off the walk, and just for no particular reason, just because he wanted to find something to do, you know, that's what kids do. And so he's doing that, and his brother is sitting in the van watching him, and he knows, he's like, that's just not a good idea. We need the salt there. Why are you wasting the salt? This is like a total offense to him. And so he gets out and he says, hey, what are you doing? Stop it. And his brother's like, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my authority. And he just keeps on going. And so this makes the oldest one even more angry. And he gets out and he comes down to him. And he said, you can't do that. You're so stupid. You're taking the salt off the walk. And then it's going to freeze again. And so he goes through this whole explanation. And the youngest one's just not listening to him so eventually this escalates and they come inside. And so I'm talking to Gabe about this and this moment just stood out to me. He said, dad, he's just so stupid. He said, he just won't listen to me. He just doesn't get it. It's like when he was doing that, that he just wanted me to punch him in the face. <laughs> and I try I try very hard not to laugh at that moment. But what stood out to me and what I heard in his voice was this. That his greatest problem was outside of him. It was his brother. And what really broke my heart in that moment was the reality is his greatest problem inside of him is inside of him. It's his desire to control. And it's his anger. And those two problems coming out, he had no idea that that was the issue. And isn't that true of so many of us? We look at the world and we say, well, the world's the problem. I mean, I hear things like this said, you know, if if I just got treated with some more respect around here, well, then I wouldn't blow up. As if the problems outside of myself, Or I've heard this question asked, well, if 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 women just didn't dress the way they do, if they didn't dress so provocatively, well, then I wouldn't struggle with lust. The problem isn't outside. It's not them. The problem is in here. But see, let me ask you a question. What's easier to fix, right? Is it easier to just fix the world around us and say, culture's bad, world's bad, it's all their problem. Or is it easier to look inside of our own hearts and say, man, I got to do some work there. God, you need to to forgive me for some of this. You need to heal me in this area. This is going to be a journey. And I think for most of us, it's easier to look at the world and just say, well, it's the world's problem. It's the world's fault. Rather than do the hard work of looking inside of ourselves as David did and said, God, search me. Know my anxious thoughts. Know my heart. And if there's any wickedness in me, expose it to me so that I can repent of it and be right before you. It's in our hearts. That's the issue there. And so we need to be careful that we don't just look at the culture and build all these walls and say, well, the culture's bad. When it's stuff going on in here, I I love what this pastor in in Minneapolis says, David Mathis, he says it this way. Jesus' true followers have not only been crucified to the world, but also raised to new life and sent back in to free others. We've been rescued from darkness and given the light, not merely to flee the darkness, but to guide our steps as we go back in to rescue others. I love the imagery that he uses there. We're on a rescue mission. And how can we rescue them if we're attacking them? How can we rescue them if we're just pointing fingers, if we're just here just to take up time? We're just biding time until Jesus comes back. But that's not why he set us free. That's not why he opened our eyes. That's not why he moved us from darkness into light. He did that so that we could show others. And I want to build on this idea as we we start to wrap this up. John chapter 17. Move into verse uh, 20 with me this is where jesus starts to pray for you and i as followers of his he says i am praying not only for these disciples but also for all who will hear or who will ever believe in the message through through them and verse 21 i pray that they will be one just as you and i are one as you are in me father i am in you And may they be in us so that the world would believe you sent me. If you listen to the language here and you really think about this, there is just such a deep intimacy within the Trinity between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure that we can even grasp that, this side of glory. I don't think we can. But listen to what he's saying here. He's saying, I want them to be in us just as we are with one another. So there's this deep unity and intimacy. And then he goes on and says, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. There's the purpose. So that the world, the people will believe that you sent me. And verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me. So they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And my mind is just completely blown by this. So he gets into this area of unity, such perfect unity. And then he says, may they experience that unity that the world will know that you sent me. There it is again, the purpose you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And somebody needs to hear this this morning, that you love them as much as you love me. How can that possibly be? As I read this, I was thinking, "This, I was, God, how is that possible? How is it possible that you love me, a sinner, a run of the litter, as much as you love Jesus, your son? How is that possible? And yet, that's what he says. Look at it. Let it resonate for a minute. That you love them as much as you love me. And what happens when we start to believe that? When you get a group of people that start to really believe that, all right, Jesus has come. He's made a way. God loves me as his father. This world is not my home. And I know that he loves me so much even as much as he loves his own son, Jesus. That is, still can't get my head around that. But what happens when we we do that, when we start to believe that, what, what begins to happen is you get a group of people that walk in real confidence and faith as they walk through this life. You walk with confidence and boldness, knowing that I am my father's and this world is not my home. And you look at what he talks about here in verse 23. He says, may they experience such perfect unity. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the church. Not the church, the walls, but the church, the people. May they experience such perfect unity that the world would know that you sent me. And and at first glance, you look at this and you think, well, Jesus, man, not even five minutes after you left, the church is fumbling around. They're starting to bicker and fight with one another. And I think it's because we start to lose sight of this, what's really important. What's really important as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would simply encourage one another. We've got to challenge each other when we sin, but we encourage one another. We challenge one another. We love one another so deeply. As deeply as God the Father and Jesus love one another, we would be in them and that we would have that love for each other. And so often we just get so irritated with such minute little things and the church goes on fighting one another, fighting at each other, and we're missing the purpose. We're here with a purpose. There's a greater plan. Yeah, there's going to be struggles and we've got to work those out. But our love for one another should be so deep that we can work those things out, that we can work through those things. And that's when peace comes. When we can have that peace and harmony and know that there is a deep amount of love for one another. And though I might blow it, I know that those brothers and sisters are going to come around me. They're going to forgive me. They're going to challenge me. And I need that. It's a group of people that are on a mission. There's a verse that the writer of Hebrews gives us in, in chapter 10. A very famous verse says this, let us think of ways to motivate one another. And he's talking about in the context here, he's talking about the church. He says, let's think about ways that we can motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is drawing near. And here's my fear, and this is where I want to end. My fear is this, folks, that when, when, if you are walking through this life as a Christian and you can say to yourself, you know what, I really don't feel like I need that Sunday morning gathering. I, I don't feel like I need a life group. I don't feel like I need anybody around me to encourage me. I, I don't really need anybody to pray with me. I don't really need the church, but I can be a lone ranger for Jesus. I have a great fear with that, and my fear is this, that you are finding fellowship in the world and that's why you don't need fellowship in the church you're finding relationship with the lord and it's or with the world and it, you're close with the world but you're not you're not needing that fellowship with one another and i i take back to that picture of me swimming against the current when i got to the beach i was so relieved to get there i was exhausted we should be that as the church. We should go through this life exhausted, worn out, that we're fighting against the current, but praise God that he's given us brothers and sisters that we can find comfort in, encouragement in, rest in. Ah, I'm not doing this alone. Paul Tripp again puts it this way as we get ready to close here, is Corporate worship is designed to lure you away from your little kingdom of one. And enthrall you again with God's kingdom of glory and grace. We cannot forget, we cannot forget that God has called us His own. He's called us out. He's given us a new name for a purpose. And so when He says this, when He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled, do not let your hearts be troubled, may we know that as we swim upstream, as the world and the culture pushes against us, as Jesus talked about through 14 to 17 in the book of John, that the world's going to hate us, there's going to be sorrows, there's going to be trials, but may we link arms in perfect unity, knowing that our father has called us out, and may we show and demonstrate the love of our great God and father to this world. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you again for your great love. I thank you, I thank you, I thank you that you have have provided a way for us through Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to, Lord, stay away from temptation. As a body of believers, I pray that you would keep us from temptation and that you would deliver us from the enemy. I pray that you would give us a rich and deep love for one another, just as you love us. May we link arms together. May we carry each other's burdens. May we pray for one another. May we run this race together as you have laid it out for us. May we fight against the darkness and may we show them your marvelous light, Father. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.